of the 10th chapter, and we will take up again in the 22nd verse. And if you recall, last week we had the portion of scriptures where Jesus was saying, I'm the good shepherd and I'm the door. If you want to come to the Father, you come through Jesus. He's the door. And once we get into the fold, he's going to go further into this, but the security of the believer, once you get in, his very life is put in front of that door. And anybody who's going to try to get you is going to have to come through him. And we know that's impossible. And we're not going to be able to get out except that we go out through him. And he says that's not possible. He says that God is not going to allow anything, anybody, the devil, nothing to snatch us away from him once we are his. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go into this next portion. And I'm told from commentaries that chapter 7 through chapter 10, verse 21, uh, took place during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And that between verses 21 and 22, two, three months have elapsed because now we're at the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Tabernacles was mid-October. And the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah is mid-December. So keep that in mind, if you will. And, it's, and when he refers back to things, this is probably why, the, why these two portions of Scripture were put in the same chapter, because he's going to make reference back to the shepherd and to the sheep. He'll make reference back to several things that we'll find back in those chapters. But probably there was a lapse of two, two and a half uh, months in the ministry of Christ. And this is covered mainly in Mark's Gospel, and it's called the Perean ministry, his ministry in Perea. So if you want to do, this is according to uh, Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels, and he puts that portion that John doesn't include in, in this place between verse 21 and 22. All right, so he's descriptive here. He says it was winter, and the festival of dedication was being held in Jerusalem. Now, the festival of dedication was one of the latest feasts to be instituted, and it was, uh, I want to tell you a lot about that or something about it so you can understand where we were. It could be held anywhere. It was not one of the great festivals that had to be held in Jerusalem where every male over um, within 20-mile radius had to attend. The Feast of, of Dedication could be observed in your home, in any city, wherever you were, in any village, wherever you were. So the origin was <coughs> of this is called the Feast of Dedication, the Festival of Dedication, the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, and the origin was one of the greatest times of ordeal and heroism in the Jewish history. And so if you go back to there and you recall just a little bit about what was happening to the Jews, this may have been a worse period in their history than the time when Hitler was trying to uh, get rid of all the Jews in Germany. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was the main character opposing the Jewish faith. He was the king of Syria, and he was a lover of everything Greek. I mean, he loved the Greek culture the Greek word, the Greek gods. So he decided to eliminate the Jewish religion and to introduce Greek ways and thoughts and religion into Palestine. And this was his, his obsession at that time. If he could just get rid of all the Jewish faith and just turn Palestine into a Greek land, this was the desire of his heart. And he set out to do that. He first set out to do it in peaceful ways. He tried just a little infiltration of the mind, and this didn't work. There were some who accepted the way, thought it was so pleasing and enticing, and they said, yeah, we want to go this way. We want to go with the Greek. Many Jews who were left who refused to follow after what he was telling them um, was the beautiful way. And so in 170 B.C., Antiochus um, attacked Jerusalem, and there were some 80,000 Jews who were slaughtered in, just in an, one day. 
and at least that many or more were taken into captivity, sold into slavery. And so they stole the temple treasury, and it became uh, a capital offense to possess any portion of the law, any of the written law. You were killed because of that. You were uh, unable to circumcise your child, and you know how important that was to the Jewish mother and father. It was even to the place that if a mother had their, the son circumcised, she was crucified with the child hanging around her neck. It was that, that bad a time in Jewish history. Uh, the temple courts were profaned, and you know how much they loved the temple. The courts were totally profaned. The chambers were turned into brothels. Uh, he turned the great altar of burnt offering into an altar to Olympian Zeus. And on this altar, he served or had them serve swine on the burnt offering altar. This was the greatest of abominations to the Jews. And it just, it was at that point when Judas Maccabeus, if you're familiar with Jewish history, when he and his brothers stood up then to fight against Antiochus and the Syrian armies there. And in 164 B.C., that battle was won. They fought. They were small in number. Oh, but they were strong in spirit. And, you know, that usually is the person who wins, the one who has God on his side and the one who fights because everything he believes in is at stake. And he gets up and fights like 20 men. You know, one person against 20. All right, so the temple in 164 B.C., the temple was cleansed and purified, and the altar was rebuilt, and robes and utensils were replaced because they were so defiled. They had to be replaced. So everything was restored to normal uh, after this tremendous bloody fight between the Maccabees and the Syrian armies under Antiochus Epiphanes. And so it was at that time when they won the victory that the Feast of Dedication was instituted and it was there to commemorate the purification of the temple. And it lasted for eight days. And each time this, each year when this was uh, observed, it lasted again for eight days like the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it was called the Festival of Lights, and there was great illumination in the temples. They lit up the temple so everybody would know that God had delivered the temple. And then each home, each Jewish home, would have eight candles in a window so that they would illuminate their home and know that God had delivered the home. God had delivered the temple, God had delivered the nation, God had delivered the home. And so the lights had two significance, and this is the reason sometimes it's called the Festival of Lights. And still today, in any good Orthodox Jewish home, during this period, they'll have the eight lights in the window. And the lights served as a reminder that the, the first celebrating of the festival, the light of freedom, came back to Israel. And the second thing was that it traced back uh, to an old legend. And they said in this legend that when the temple was purified and the great seven-branch candlestick came to be relit, there was only one little cruise of oil that was acceptable. And this little cruise of oil was only enough to light uh, the candlestick, the seven-branch candlestick, for one day. But that God performed a great miracle at that time, and he caused the little cruise to uh, light the candlestick for eight days. See, this is the reason it lasted for eight days. And so in the, in the homes, and according to two Jewish historians, one says 
that the eight candles, that one was lighted on the first day and then one was lighted on the second day, the second one was lighted on the second day, and so forth, until the eighth day, all eight were lighted. Another Jewish historian says that all eight were lighted on the first day, and then one was snuffed out each day until the eighth day. So I don't know what the legend really said, but that doesn't matter. Everybody believed that he was to have a part in showing the world that God had delivered them in a miraculous way and that God had even performed the miracle of saying, this light is for me. I've given you the light that you need. Comes And now Jesus says, and, and keep this in mind, he came right at this time to say, I am the light of the world. Right at this particular time uh, of the year, he says to them, I am the light of the world. You're lighting up the temple with, with cruises of oil. You're lighting up your homes with candles and oil in the candles. And I'm telling you that I'm the light of the world. Come to the world, not only to shed light on the temple and in the home, but shed light uh, within the person, within the heart of the person. So it's tremendous significance here to know what time of the year it was and what was happening and how Jesus was being heard at that time more than he would have been heard maybe in March at another feast time. This was um, a beautiful, significant thing at, at this particular time. All right, so he's walking around. Jesus was walking in the temple precincts in Solomon's portico. And this was a covered, these porches were covered. And so this was the rainy season of the year during December. And you would need the covered porches for the rabbis to walk under. The people would come to those porches and pray. And they would come and listen to their favorite rabbi expound on his teachings. And so Jesus would go to this particular part of the temple and all the people would gather around him. And when he says in the next verse, the Jews gathered round him, it literally means there that they closed him in. They hemmed him in so that there was no place he could see out. He was totally, completely closed in by the Jews that day. The Jews gathered round him and asked, how long must you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah... Say so plainly. Now, you remember through our studies, through John, there are plenty of times he has said so in so many different words. There are specific times where he said so plainly, but those uh, two of those times were in private encounters. Do you remember in John 4.26, he said to the Samaritan woman, he told her, she said, where is Messiah? You know, who is Messiah? And he declared to her that he was Messiah. And then when he healed the, the blind man, and he met him on a one-to-one -one basis after that and shared with him his need for a spiritual encounter with him, and he shared with him, I am the one sent. You know, I am the Messiah. All right, and then another time, and whether this happened before, uh, but in the earlier part of John, do you recall that <coughs> there was a time when his disciples were saying to him, who, he said to the disciples, who do men say I am? And we were, we were questioning whether or not there were two different times where it was declared that he was the Son of God, the Son of the living God. But if that happened before this time, they would have been asking him, and he would have been saying at least three different occasions, I've told you emphatically, I am the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. On many other occasions, you recall everything that he said said this. He claimed deity. He claimed to be one with God. And they just didn't hear him. Because he wasn't who they thought he should be as Messiah, they refused to recognize him as being the sent one from God. But he told them over and over and over. And if you remember last week when we went through the I Ams, every time he said, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, every time he said this, he was saying, God, the living water, 
God, the good shepherd, God, the door. He was saying God, the living bread, you know, the bread of life, God, the light of the world. So he claimed deity for quite some time on many different occasions. And because of who he was and what he was saying, they refused to accept anything. They refused to hear. They were so blind. Do you remember the last portion of last week where it said, I've come that those who are blind might see and those who think they see might be made blind so that they can really see. All right, they were so blind in what they had been taught and believed all their lives until when the Son of God himself was face to face with him, they didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't hear anything he had to say. They had closed minds and closed hearts to the Messiah. So he says, they say to him, if you're the Messiah, say so plainly. And he said, I have told you, but you didn't believe said, my deeds done in my Father's name are my credentials. But because you're not my sheep, the sheep of my flock, you do not believe. My own sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. All right, now he's referring back. This two and a half months have lapsed. He's referring back to the discourse on the good shepherd and to the sheep of his flock. And he says, one way you know that you're a sheep is that you have heard my voice. Now, here's where we have the mix-up and mess-up within church circles. This is where within um, any given church role, we have people on there who've made professions. We have people on those roles who've walked down the aisles. We have people on those roles who have been baptized but have never heard the voice of God. And if he doesn't make any other thing clear, here he says, my sheep have heard my voice. It doesn't mean it has to be an audible thing. His voice is the Word of God. This, this recorded scripture is the Word of God. And if you are reading and studying and pouring, and, and I shared this yesterday, when I came to the Word of God, even on a pamphlet, and it said, come to me, I heard the voice. See, it was like I really heard his voice, and I followed. And that made me a sheep, nothing else. I heard the voice and I gave in to the voice and surrendered to the person, Jesus Christ, and that's what made me a born-again Christian. Not having joined a church, not having been baptized, not having done good works, none of these things made me a Christian. Not being good, none of those things had anything to do with it. I heard his voice and I followed, and that made me a sheep of the fold. <coughs> Okay, now let's, let's listen to this again because he goes on to elaborate on it. And I think here we may get some things cleared up and some, either we, we may either have to examine our experience or we're either going to have a lot of, of assurance from this portion of Scripture. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And that's that double negative. No, not never. <laughs> if, if you don't believe in the security of the believer... You're just going to have to eliminate portions of Scripture like this. You're going to have to cut them out. And when you start cutting up the Bible and taking out the security of the believer, you're going to not going to have much Bible left. You're just going to have a few little fragmentary portions left. He says, I give them eternal life. Eternal life is forever. I don't give them eternal life as long as they do this, as long as they do that, as long as they stay here, as long as they don't go there, as long as they don't do this. He said, I give them eternal life and they shall never, not never, perish. No one shall snatch them from my care. And the word there was neuter, and it doesn't mean some translations have no man, 
but that's not what it re really means. It includes no man, no thing, no devil, nobody will ever snatch them from my care. Now, that's pretty permanent, isn't it? Or you said, um, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's care. It's like His hand's holding us. It's not like we're de we are depending on our holding Him. He's holding us. He's got us in His hand. He's got us in His care. And nobody is stronger than God, and nobody... It can't be done. And he says, then he says, my father and I are one. So for the devil or a thing or a man to get me, they're going to have to go through the father and they're going to have to go through the son. And I'm just as secure as I can be in the assurance that they're not going to get through those two. <laughs> I mean, they are pretty big, you know, and they're pretty strong and they're pretty powerful. I'm weak. But I'm not, uh, my salvation, my eternal security is not dependent on me. It's dependent upon God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And you're going to have to get through them to get to me. All right, now, we come to all these people who say, well, boy, it would be easy to be a Baptist and believe like y'all believe. You ever heard this? Man, <clears throat> if I believe that once saved, always saved, I could just do anything. That would be great. If I didn't have to do good works, if I didn't have to attend faithfully, if I didn't have to do this and that and the other, I would have it made. And then they're going to say, you just believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, and you could live like you want to live. You know, do what you want to do. And you're always going to be safe and secure. Well, see, they're so wrong. And any Baptist who believes that is so wrong. It's so wrong. See, the thing about it is, once you become in all this about the Good Shepherd, the sheep hear my voice and follow it. If you, if you miss everything else, don't miss that because this is the clue to whether or not you've truly been born again and whether or not you're really a sheep. The desire of your heart is to follow the shepherd. And if a person walks down an aisle, joins a church, is baptized or whatever, I don't care what church it's in, and they don't, the desire of their heart is not to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a sheep. And Brother Malky brought this out pretty strongly Sunday. He really did. And this just follows up and emphasizes it because it's straight from the Bible. It's not anything anybody's coming up with or making, making up. It's simply, I think God is ready to open our eyes, many of our eyes, to something we need to hear. And that's that if you persist in sin, if you think that everything is wrapped up in your membership in a church, and you just continue to live like you want to live. And remember the picture of the shepherd and how he takes the sling. And if you get out of line, he's, he shoots that little rock over there and gets you back. He gets your attention. He takes that, that crook and puts it around your neck and brings you back in. If you're going the way you want to go and you're having no compunction of conscience about it and you continue in that way, just keep on and continue in that way, refusing to listen to the voice of the good shepherd, you're not a sheep. It's as simple as that. Does that make it clear? That's so clear. And I wouldn't be disturbed at all about that. I would simply want to get it straight. I wouldn't want to spend one more minute wrestling with whether I'm saved or whether I'm not saved. I would simply take this portion of Scripture and analyze it very carefully in light of my own experience and say, do is the desire of my heart to follow the voice of the shepherd and that doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we never make mistakes. We do. A sheep still starts to wander off. 
you know, sheep still, or if it weren't for the shepherd keeping him, you know, in line, he would begin to wander off and decide the pasture was a little greener over here or something like that. But he's not going to let us. If we're one of his, he's not going to let us. He's going to make us know that we're getting in trouble. And he's going to take that little crook, put it around our neck, and get us back in. And so if that never happens, I, would, I'd, I believe I can be bold in saying I would be uh, sure that before this day was over, I'd get that thing straightened out. I think the day has come when the church is going to have to be purged. I really do. I think it's just going to have to be purged. And we're going to have to stand up and be counted one side or the other. And that's what's needed today more than anything else is for us to know, to really know whether or not we're born-again Christians. We are, I, I just believe from the bottom of my heart that more than anything else in this world, our desire, the desire of our heart is to follow him. Okay, he says, once again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. At this, they can't stand truth. Have you ever noticed anything like that? I've never said they aren't any different from the way we are today. If if somebody comes along and says something too strong and you don't like it, man, you're ready to get up and walk out. You're ready to throw something. You're ready to scream. You're ready to holler. You're ready to do something. That's all I could think of yesterday about halfway through the uh, the testimony. And when I realized Linda for the first time was taping it and some of the things I was saying about my hometown or, or something, all I, was, I thought, oh, my soul, if this ever gets back, the devil just planted that right there in that minute. If this ever gets back, honey, you're going to be stoned. And I am not at all. I, I think we'll keep this in Huntsville. I think if it's okay with you, I am not brave enough to take this back to Brookhaven as true as it is. Oh, I, I thought a few times my mother was going to get me right <laughs> it, it takes a lot of guts to be bold. But um, anyway, that's what happened. Every time Jesus was strong in what he said and forceful in the way he said it, and it, it split the groups always, they, the first instinct they had was pick up a stone and let him have it. At this, Jesus said to them, I have set before you many good deeds done by my Father's power. For which of these would you stone me? He had the most marvelous ability to use psychology and, and finesse. Oh, he was, he was a real wizard when it came to taking an impossible situation and always saying just what it would take to get them to have to just drop the stone. And see, it was not his time. He, it said several times, this was not his time. And they couldn't have taken his life at that moment if they had wanted to, but they would always take up the stones. That was their indication. But then when he said this, you can almost see the stones. The hands begin to drop and the stones drop to the ground. Because he said, you know, all the good deeds that I've done through my father's power, he said, which one of these good deeds are you going to stone me for? Are you going to stone me for feeding the 5,000? Are you going to stone me for giving the blind man back his sight? Are you going to stone me for helping that man who'd been lame for 38 years to get up and walk and carry his bed? Are you going to stone me for healing the, the um, child who was dying, you know, giving him back life? What are you going to stone me for? All the things that I've done since I've been here have been good deeds. Now, what would you have done? Dropped your stone. The Jews replied, we're not going to stone you for any good deed, but for your blasphemy. And here again, he just got through saying, my father and I are one. See what he claimed? He claimed once again. 
he was one with the Father. That was blasphemy. If you didn't know he was the Son of God, if you didn't believe that in your heart, he had just was abominable in his blasphemy when he said, my father and I are one. So they said, we're going to stone you because of your blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be a God. Here goes Jesus again. I'd sometimes just sit down and read his answers to things. Just really look into his answers to situations like this because he was never at a lack of, of having the right answer or the right words for them. They said, you claim to be God. And Jesus goes back to their scripture. All the Jews knew their scripture. They were well-founded in the Old Testament Scripture. And so he says, is it not written in, in your own law? Go back, let me pull something out of the Scripture. He said, I said, you are gods. Those are called gods to whom the Word of God was delivered, and Scripture cannot be set aside. And then, why do you charge me with blasphemy? Because I consecrated and sent into the world by the Father, said I am God's Son. And once you go back to Psalm 82... And that's where this portion of scripture was, was lifted from that Jesus used at that time. Psalm 82. And he's saying there, God takes his stand in the court of heaven to deliver judgment among the gods themselves. And they call the judges gods. They were those who were given an assignment by God and they were to speak for God and deliver a message for God. And so they were called, the word was Elohim. And that meant God, either capital letter God or gods, small letter, uh, small g, those kind of gods. But he, he called them in the scripture, in the psalm, like God, but that they were delivering a message for God. And they were executing judgment on behalf of God. And so he goes on to say, uh, to make sure that they understand that they better judge wisely and not unjustly. How long will you judge unjustly and show favor to the wicked? You ought to give judgment for the weak and the orphan and see right done to the destitute and downtrodden. You ought to rescue the weak and the poor and save them from the clutches of wicked men. But you know nothing. You understand nothing. You walk in the dark while earth's foundations are giving way. This is my sentence. God's, you may be, sons all of you of a high God. And this is where he goes back and he calls them gods, not capital letter, but little letter. You are a son, you've given a task from God himself. You're supposed to be executing judgment for him. You're not doing it according to the way God wanted it done. And so he was really reprimanding them there because of that. But they knew when he went back and took that psalm, they knew that psalm and they knew what he was saying. And he's saying, if those were called gods, you know, because they had been given an assignment from God and was to speak for God, then why are you going to stone me and kill me because I claim that I'm the Son of God, that I'm God? And he says, uh, because I consecrated and sent into the world by the Father, say, I am the Son, God's Son. Now, he claimed two things there. He claimed to be consecrated by God for a special task, task and the word is holy, means holy. And it's, it's like they, they realized the, the altar was holy and the, uh, the brazen altar was holy and the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was holy. They believed the priest, the job of the, of the priest was holy. They believed the prophets were holy. They used holy to mean that a person was set aside, set apart with a particular task to do. And that task was given to them by God. And God empowered them, gave them what they needed to do and end. And so all, they understood the word holy or the special task. And Jesus said, I above everybody else and everything else have been consecrated or set apart by God the Father. I've been sent into this world 
to do a special job, to do a task. And, and you should recognize that as holy. Because he went on to say, God has dispatched me into the world. God has sent me into the world, which said it, I was before. When he said that God sent me into the world, I was before this world. I was before you. I was before Abraham. I was before time. All right, God had dispatched him into the world as the ambassador or as a messenger speaking for God. And so what he's saying, I can claim to be God. I am God. The Father and I are one. And you shouldn't argue with this because of what I've been sent to do. And you've seen it. You've seen it in action. And you should know better. All right, so he says, if I'm not acting as my Father would, do not believe me. But I am... Um, but if I am, accept the evidence of my deeds, even if you do not believe me, so that you may recognize and know that the Father's in me and I in the Father. And this is powerful. That one verse, if we just took that one, that's powerful. Because what he's saying is you can argue with my words. We can argue all day. I can stand up here and tell you things. I could share uh, testimony. I could tell you a lot of words, and you could take them or leave them. You could argue with them. You could say that's ridiculous, that's hogwash, and that would never work. But if you see action, if you see life changed, if you see deeds done, if you see acts of love and acts that are done in power, if you see all these things done, you can't argue with that. You just can't argue with that. So whether you believe me or not, he says, whether you believe my words, that's not the important thing. You should look at my life. And you should see something in my life. If I've lived, I can almost hear him say, if I've lived among you and am still patient and loving and kind and generous and giving, that's, that's a miracle. You can't argue with that. And the same thing, I have never seen a verse of Scripture that should apply to us more. And listen to it. And, and I'm including myself in this. What he's saying here for us is we should give a testimony in deed as well as word. If we do a lot of yakking about our faith in Christ and our spirituality and our this and our that, and there's nothing to back it up as far as action is concerned, you see no deeds coming out of my life. You see no life that puts into action these words, don't believe me. Just don't believe me. It's as simple as that. But if you see a life that backs up the profession, then you pay attention. You pay close attention to what that person says. And that applies to us in a unique sort of way. Here's where we have the breakdown in communication between Christian and non-Christian <laughs> is they hear too much, between parent and child, they hear too much and see too little. It's true. As much as we hate to admit it, they hear a lot, but they don't see a great deal. That's too different. They'll hear about us telling about God who's the God of rest and peace. And they'll see us falling apart at the seams. Right? They'll hear about the God who's the God of patience and of victory. And they'll see somebody who has no patience whatsoever. You know, I mean, they're, the minute anything goes contrary to what they want, they're on you like white on rice. I mean, they're ready to tear you apart. Right, there's such contradiction in what we say and what we do until nobody wants to listen to us. So it's so important to get that part of it straightened out and to get to the place where somebody sees in my life and in your life something that's so Christ-like that they'll listen to what we have to say. And that's the only way they're going to listen. All right, he says, This provoked them one more time to attempt to seize him. 
but he escaped from their clutches. How many times we've seen this? They're always ready. Here, he said something they didn't want to hear again, so they're going to seize him. I mean, that's physical. They're going to grab him and seize him and stone him and do whatever else, crucify him, whatever they want to do at that point. But he, he escaped from their clutches. Again, it was not his time. And nobody could make premature what God had designed as far as the cross was concerned. Or Jesus withdrew again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier. And there he stayed. He lingered for a time while crowds came to him and they said, John gave us no miraculous sign, but all that he said about this man was true. Many came to believe in him there. And this is a fitting epitaph to John the Baptist. If I ever saw one, this is the last time he's mentioned in the scripture. And he said, Jesus went back to the place where his ministry started. And that's interesting in, in itself. He had had a, so much up to this point, and it's just prior to the crucifixion now. Just a short while. We're December, Feast of Dedication, and he's going to be crucified in, in early spring. All right, so it's that close to time for his life to be given for us. And he goes back, feels a need for some reason to go back where it all started. Go back to the place where he was baptized and where God gave the endorsement from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the direction. Go in it. Follow after it all the way, completely, obediently, unreservedly. And so he says, when he went back, and I think the significance there for us is sometimes if you get all bogged down in life and pressures and things like that, go back. Go back to where it all started. This is what Jacob did when he went back to Bethel. He got to a place where he was confused. He didn't understand what was happening. And he went back to Bethel, and there he renewed again this thing that had started, that God had started. And remember that God never starts anything he doesn't finish. If he started a work in us, he's going to finish it. And you can count on him to do that. He's faithful to do that. So even Jesus season had a need to go back where he heard the Father say, this is the way, walk in it. And when he went back, a testimony was given to John the Baptist like none I've seen anywhere else. I love that man because what's recorded about him. John didn't give any miraculous signs. John never drew attention to himself. John the Baptist it said when he got back, the groundwork was so laid there, he was still pointing men to Jesus, away from himself, and to Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. And it was so well laid, the foundation there, that when Jesus got there, many came to believe in him there. It's almost like they added there as opposed to in Jerusalem where he was. Many believed in him there. There was a witness there. There was one pointing to the light, one pointing to the Lamb of God. Now, at this point, I want us to go back to the prologue, the first chapter of John. And if you remember, it's a good place to go back to that. The first 18 verses in the Gospel of John are called the prologue. And these first 18 verses are almost a nutshell of what the whole Gospel of John is about. And, and I thought about midway through, we would go back and read this again and see if everything he said through his Gospel account of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus isn't fulfilled in these first 18 verses. When all things began, the Word already was. The Word dwelt with God, and, and what God was, the Word was. The Word then was with God at the beginning, and though through him all things came to be. No single thing was created without him. All that came to be was alive with his life. Now, remember all the teaching of Jesus about him, the life 
abundant life I've come to give you. I've come to give you life and that more abundant. I want you to listen for these things. Life, light, all of these things we've been studying about. And that life was the light of men. The light shines on in the dark and the darkness has never mastered it. There appeared a man named John sent from God and he came as a witness to testify to the light that all might become believers through him. He was not himself the light. He came to bear witness to the light. The real light which enlightens every man was even then coming into the world. He was in the world, but the world, though it owed its being to him, did not recognize him. How many times have we come to the place where they said, are you really the Messiah? Even John the Baptist at one point had to ask, are you really, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Messiah? He entered his own realm, and his own would not receive him. But to all who did receive him, remember the portions on the living water, and you had to drink, you had to receive it for yourself. To all that received him, to those who have yielded him their allegiance, their lives, he gave the right to become children of God, not born of any human stock or by the fleshly desire of a human father, but the offspring of God himself. This didn't come by way of parentage or, or your heritage. It came by way of the Son. To many, as many as received him, to those gave he the power to become sons of God. And so the word became flesh, and he came to dwell among us, and we saw his glory. Such glory as befits the Father's own only Son, full of grace and truth. Here's John's testimony to him. He cried aloud, This is the man I meant when I said he comes after me, but takes rank before me. For before I was born, he already was. Out in eternity's full store, we have all received grace upon grace. For while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through the, Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but God's only Son, he who is nearest to the Father's heart. He's made him known to us. Now, do you see in the prologue more than you saw when we had it when we started to the this study, by the time you get to the middle of John's gospel, you go back to the prologue and realize that he's just going to expound on the statements, the declarative statements he made in those first 18 verses. And it's thrilling to see it all, you know, become full and complete as he explains it to us and helps us to understand. Okay, our time is up.